Hey y'all, Eve's here. We're doubling up today with two events in history. On with the show. Welcome to This Day in History class. And we have another special guest on the podcast today. That special guest is Annie Reese, who is the host of Stuff Mom Never Told You, a really amazing feminist podcast, and the co-host of Savor, where she talks about all things food, and she visits really cool cities to explore their food culture. Right, Annie? Yes, yes. And I'm so thrilled to be here with you, Eves. Eves, you've been on Stuff I've Never Told You with me. Um, we always have a great conversation. Yes, we do. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, which is about the Women's Olympiad, which started on March 24th, 1921, right? Yes, that is correct. So, yeah, we're talking about French feminist Alice Milliat and her Women's World Games, which took place from 1921 to 1934 and led to the Olympics, letting women compete in more events. That's a really big deal, isn't it? I, yes. <laughs> I almost wrote, like, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of why I think this is such a big deal, and I will kind of end on that note. Okay. But I, I tried to you know, shave it down so that people won't get tired of my soliloquies. Well, this is what you do. (laughs) You (laughs) talk about women's history all the time and what's going on today with women. But tell me a little bit about what the Olympiad actually was, what happened during the Olympiad. Sure. And and before we get into it, just a quick disclaimer, there are a lot of acronyms (laughs) in this. Okay. So bear with me. You are the acronym queen. (laughs) That's what they call me. This is knowledge, (laughs) common knowledge. So Yes, it is. It's like on a plaque on my desk. (laughs) The Women's World Games were Alice Milia's response to the International Olympic Committees, or the IOC, um, and the International Association of Athletics Federation, the IAAF, their disdain and fear of first-wave feminist gaining ground and um, of women wanting to compete in certain events like the 800-meter track event. This one was particularly controversial. Um, events that did not recognize women or had been deemed unfit for women. Mm. So some context. At this time, people, and particularly here we're talking about Europeans, were already having conversations about gender equality. The term feminism is thought to have been coined in the 1880s by a French activist by the name of Hubertine Auclair. Around the same time, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who was also French, founded the modern iteration of the Olympics and of the IOC. De Coubertin outright opposed women's participation in sports, and this bled over into what events he believed women could and should compete in when it came to the Olympic Games. So the 1900 Games were the first that allowed women to compete at all in tennis and golf. Nothing else. Okay. Yep. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Over the years, they did add things like women's swimming, but track and field events were pretty much non-existent for female competitors. And if you're asking, why track and field? The answer is lost to time. Some physicians thought women exerting themselves to the point of visible sweat was unhealthy for women. Um, So maybe it's that. It was definitely, in either case, viewed as unladylike to sweat in public and possibly bad for your uterus. Um, Although I have to say, I have built up quite a sweat playing tennis. That was going to be my question. Like, why why do they think you can't sweat (laughs) when you're doing certain sports if they both take levels of physical exertion? Right. Well, one interesting thing, and this is just me 
wondering if if it had something to do with this, but the tennis uniform for women at this time was essentially covering all of your skin. So maybe they just couldn't see you sweat. Mm. I don't know. Classic trickery. <laughs> what you can't see doesn't exist. It was like a weighted down skirt. It, it did not look comfortable <laughs> for playing in the hot weather. But anyway, um, the first French women's athletic club, Femina Sport, which was founded in 1911, put together France's very first women's national championship for track and field in 1917. That same year, some of Femina Sport's founders created the Fédération de Société Féminine Sportive de France, or Women's Sports Federation of France. And this is when Alice Milia enters the picture. She was one of the founders of this organization. She formally requested that women's track and field be added to the Olympics in 1991. That's when she put in the request, was turned down. (laughs) So what does she do? She decides to host her own Olympics. Pretty much. Okay. The first step was uh, founding the ISFI, and on March 24th of 1921, that organization hosts the inaugural Women's Olympiad in Monte Carlo, and it's complete with 11 track and field events, five different nations represented. It was meant to show the IOC, hey, look, we can do this, Mm -hmm. um, and persuade them, kind of a proof of concept. Um, You should add these categories to the Olympics. And despite the fact that this event was a success, the IOC rejected their appeal. But that did not stop Milia. The following year, the ISFI took it up a notch and hosted the first Women's Olympic Games with the idea of following the same four-year schedule. I love this. It's like, we'll have our own Olympics then. <laughs> we don't need you. And I like how they already planned for the four years. We know this is happening. <laughs> right. We're going for this. We're staying committed to it. Exactly. I mean, it was essentially the Olympics, but for women. And the first one took place in Paris. Once again, five nations, including the United States, participated, and it was attended by around 20,000 spectators. Wow. Guess who did not like this? (laughs) Who? De Coupardin, the IOC, and the IAAF. (laughs) I would imagine. (laughs) Yes, they were not happy. They decreed that the IAAF should be in charge of all track and field events. This was a grab for control over who is allowed to compete and over who can use the Olympic brand. They didn't want this other organization coming in and using Olympic in the name. After these two organizations agreed that, yes, the IOC and the IAAF should each govern women's track and field events, so they acknowledged it was a thing. Women's track and field, is it exists. They also immediately agreed that women would not have the right to appear in track and field events in the 1924 Olympics. So they got control okay. and then shut it down. <laughs> wow. Talk about a reversal. Yeah. Um, as part of this whole thing, the ISFI, which is what Milia was associated with, did strike the Olympic from their name. They renamed their event the Women's World Games to get the IOC off their backs. The show went on, though, and four years later, the second Women's World Games set in Sweden drew athletes from nine countries, and the IOC was furious and wanted to shut it down even more. So that organization, the IOC, attempted a compromise and added five women's track and field events in their 1928 Olympic Games, and this is compared to 22 events that men could compete in, by the way. 
Milia was not satisfied with this compromise, although some other members in the ISFI were. The British women's team was on Milia's side and boycotted the 1928 Olympic Games altogether. And even though these five events being added to track and field in the Olympics, in these games, it was historic, a lot of the press at the time did not report on it that way. Take this quote from the New York Times. The final of the women's 800-meter run in which Frau Lina Radka of Germany set a world's record plainly demonstrated that even this distance makes too great a call on feminine strength. At the finish, six out of the nine runners were completely exhausted and <laughs> fell headlong on the ground. Several had to be carried off the track. The little American girl, Miss Florence McDonald, who made a gallant try but was outclassed, was in a half-faint for several minutes, while even the sturdy Miss Hitomi of Japan, who finished second, needed attention before she was able to leave the field. And that's real? Yes. You know, it almost seems comical. It does, because so many words in there, I could go into why they're problematic. For some reason, the word sturdy stood out to me. Yes, you've got sturdy, what you've sturdy got little. mean? Is she a table? <laughs> I know. But yeah, just the language that's used is just so obviously biased in that quote. Yeah, and demeaning. Yeah. Women's participation in the 800-meter run in particular, like I mentioned, seemed to be controversial, and the IOC prohibited women from competing in this event again until 1960. The 1932 Olympic Games only allowed women to compete in the 100-meter dash, so short distance compared to these longer, longer treks. The 1930s Women's World Games, on the other hand, featured 12 track and field events and competitors from 17 different countries. 1934's Women's World Games were even bigger, with 19 countries competing in 13 track and field events. With the success of these games, Milia demanded the 1936 Olympics include what she called a full program of women's events or make the Olympics for male competitors only because the ISFI was doing just fine. Thank you very much. She twisted the IAAF's arm and they eventually conceded to a nine-event program at the Olympics and to acknowledge the records set at the Women's World Games. The upcoming 1938 Women's World Games became the European Athletics Championship, so changed the name. Milia died in 1957, but she did live to see women in France get the right to vote in 1944. And so, yeah, that's kind of the story of this lost event that led the way to women being allowed to compete in more events in the Olympics. It's so interesting because they kept working for it. So you, you saw those little moments of progress mm-hmm. every single step of the way when something was given, something was taken, and that compromise and negotiation that was happening. So you mentioned earlier you were excited to talk about why this event was important. Yes, as promised. <laughs> so in light of Women's History Month, this whole thing was a huge push for women's equality. These were women who did not take no for an answer, who made their own games where they could compete, where people weren't telling them what they could and couldn't do. And they were successful enough so that the IOC had to listen to them. 
Think of all the amazing, strong athletes that we have seen and the records that these athletes have broken, the feats they've accomplished, the girls that they have inspired. Mm. I'm a runner, and I'm competitive, and I missed my Olympics window. (laughs) I mean, there's still time, but I think I missed it. Never say never, Annie. Yes, thank you, Eves. But if I had grown up not seeing women compete in track and field at the Olympics, there is no way that that would not have impacted me and what I thought I could accomplish. Mm-hmm. That's a huge deal. I would have imposed limits on myself, and I I would say probably a lot of young girls and women would have. When I run, I feel powerful and strong and confident, and I owe some of that, of that freedom of thinking that I can do this, to the women before me who fought for that chance to compete. But all of that inspirational, I hope, <laughs> stuff aside— <laughs> I have to say, if you're curious, the Olympics are still not 50-50. Okay. For instance, the 1,500-meter freestyle swim event wasn't available to women at the 2016 Rio Olympics, Um, even though Katie Ledecky has broken two world records in that event. Men didn't have the 800-meter, so it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, So all this to say there is still work to be done. This really is an ongoing conversation. And we can also talk about it in terms of non-binary and trans folks, which, yeah, this is all in the news right now. So Mm -hmm. if you think like what we're talking about is not important to the conversations we're having today around the Olympics and what sports people can and cannot compete in, according to organizations, (laughs) shadowy cabal of people. Exactly. Um, It definitely is important. And I think it's it's really valuable to remember this and to keep pushing. Well, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it today. Olympics often seem to be a hotbed of social conversations, just as a nature of all the different types of people who are involved in it. And this little slice of history about the Women's Olympiad, I think, is a thing that a lot of people may not know about. And I really appreciate you bringing this to our audience's attention today. I had no idea there was that huge background to the Women's Olympiad and that it really caused that much change. So, yeah, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure as always. (laughs) Come back soon. I will. (laughs) Keep up with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. See you same place, same time tomorrow. Hi, everyone. It's Eves again, and welcome to another episode of This Day in History class. The day was March 24, 1989. The Exxon Valdez oil tanker spilled 11 million gallons of oil in Prince William Sound in the Gulf of Alaska. The oil spill caused extensive damage to the environment and was the largest in U.S. waters until the Deepwater Horizon spill in 2010. Exxon Valdez was one of the newer ships in the Exxon Shipping Company's fleet. The night before the spill, Exxon Valdez left Valdez, Alaska, and was headed to Long Beach, California. It was carrying more than 53 million gallons of crude oil. Captain Joseph Hazelwood had been drinking alcoholic beverages that day, which would later become a point of contention. The tanker left the dock not long after 9 p.m. 
But just after midnight on March 24th, the crew realized that the tanker was off course. At 12.04 a.m., it hit Bly Reef in Prince William Sound. Eight out of the 11 cargo tanks were punctured. Soon, 10.8 million gallons of crude oil had spilled into the surrounding waters. Eventually, the spill polluted more than 1,000 miles of shoreline in south-central Alaska. Thousands of seabirds, sea otters and seals, bald eagles, and fish died because of the spill. The disaster had a significant effect on wildlife, environment-reliant industries, recreational fishing, and tourism. In investigations after the disaster, it was found that Captain Hazelwood was not at the navigation bridge. Third mate Gregory Cousins was in charge of it. Cousins had called Hazelwood just before the vessel struck Bly Reef, recognizing there was danger. But it was too late. When investigators found out that Hazelwood had been drinking before boarding Exxon Valdez, Exxon fired him. He was cleared of being intoxicated at the time of the incident, but he was convicted of misdemeanor negligence, fined $50,000, and sentenced to 1,000 hours of community service. After years of appeals, Hazelwood began community service in 1999. Exxon was deemed responsible for the disaster, along with the company's incompetent and overworked crew. Blame was also placed on the U.S. Coast Guard for a poor system of traffic regulation. In 1990, Congress passed the Oil Pollution Act, which created measures for responding to oil spills and increased penalties for spills. It also called for the eventual banning of single-hulled tankers from U.S. waters. Now, all tankers for oil, liquefied natural gas, and chemicals are double-hulled. Over the years, Exxon paid billions of dollars on restitution, cleanup costs, and personal damages. Exxon employees, federal responders, and Alaska residents helped clean up the spill. They used chemical dispersants and booms and skimmers for mechanical cleanup. But some methods workers used removed oil yet killed plants and animals. And a portion of the Alaskan coastline is still polluted with subsurface oil. Exxon Valdez was repaired, renamed, and soon returned to service. It was sold for scrap in 2012. Though the Exxon Valdez oil spill had a huge impact on the environment and industry, there have been plenty of other incidents that resulted in much larger oil spills in world history. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And you can send us a note on social media at TDIHC Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also send us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.